Well, happy Monday evening, gentlemen. How are we doing out there? All right, awesome. <laughs> I said the other uh, week, I was like, well, you have the rest of the week to make up for it if it's not so good. So I, I pray it's going just, I know you had a busy day today. So, um, guys, we, um, this is session nine. We made it to the end of First Thessalonians. We have the second letter to get to. This is a 13-week course, I remind you, so uh, I want you guys to be reading ahead. We'll be starting in chapter 1 next week, but we finish chapter 5 and the first letter tonight. Why don't we, uh, why don't we go to the Lord in, pray, in prayer and, and ask Him to bless our Bible study. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we, uh, we come before you and we just want to magnify you. We want to praise you and heap adoration on you and towards you. God, you're so merciful and gracious to each and every one of us here, undeserving of your grace, undeserving of your love, forgiveness, atonement, undeserving of your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you so, so very much for loving us and sending him in our stead. God, would you bless us this evening over and above what you already have through your word this evening? God, anything that's not of me, may it fall apart and the things that are of you in your word, that it would remain and abide with these men. Bless this Bible study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I wanted to have some printouts for you to be a little helpful, so you'll just have to write this stuff down. We have four sections. Maybe I mentioned it last time. We have a total of five sections as we close out chapter five. Five vignettes, five little sections of practical living for Christians. Tonight we have the last four. So if you're writing down, we're in verses 15 through 28, we'll be looking at the will of God, part two, the will of God, part two, that'll be verses 15 through 18, verses 19 to 22 is prophecy and spiritual gifts, verses 23 and 24 will be God's workmanship, and then finally in 25 through 28 we have prayer, a holy kiss, and an oath, an oath. So we have four vignettes, as I said, four sections of Christian living, practical Christian living that we'll uh, look at. And they won't be comprehensive. They won't be especially detailed because there's so much we have to get through. But I'm hoping that you guys will go back on your own. You'll write down something that jumps off the page for you, and you'll go back and look at that. All right, well, let's start in 15. Paul's writing, he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now you stop right there, verse 15. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And immediately, you probably, you know, your antenna goes up and you're like, wait a second, are we in the same chapter? Are we in the same book? I mean, wouldn't you agree that repaying evil for evil is the very opposite of vengeance? The very opposite of of exacting revenge? Of course you would. You say, well, why, are we, why is he talking about this in this letter to a people that are loved, that are marked by love? And I said it, it is the opposite of exacting revenge. It is the opposite of exacting vengeance. Love is. So in your minds, you can mark this down. 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. Look at this, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but 
rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, it reads, Love bears all things, listen, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So again, that's the definition of love. It's a characteristics of love, enduring, enduring all things. He says, you're not to repay anyone evil for evil, but you're to love, right? Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Not just, not just brothers, not just Christians, but to all people. And as I said, they were a people marked by love, weren't they? Uh, chapter 4 of this letter, verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Why? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That was chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. They're marked by love. They were known to be a people that were marked by love. They loved others. That's who they were. And here he is wasting time, it might seem, penning, hey guys, I don't want you to repay evil for evil. He said, well, Matt, what exactly what is your point? What are you trying to drive at? Well, we know that they were in the midst of terrible persecution, terrible suffering and affliction for the gospel. We know that. And even though they had proven to Silas and Timothy and Paul and to everyone that they were a people that loved the truth and they were living for the truth, living for God, they were, as Paul says, their hope, their joy, their crown. This is what describes them. He says regarding love, there's nothing left that we should teach you. And yet he still says, don't repay evil with evil. What does it tell us about them? What does it tell us about us? It's still necessary to be reminded not to repay evil, not to give way to the flesh in terms of retaliation, retribution, and revenge. As I said, they were set ablaze by persecution. If anyone had a right, and I, I'm using air quotes for that, if anyone had a right in the flesh to be angry, to be exercised, it should be them, I would think, right? It should be. And notice what he says. He says, don't repay evil with evil. He's acknowledging that there is evil. He doesn't say that there isn't evil. He's saying there is evil. You're just not to repay the evil with evil yourself. You see that? You're not to recompense as earned the wages evil for evil. He assumes, Paul does, that they're going to be the recipients of that evil, of that harm, of that injury. Evil wickedness from the world. By definition, the evil they receive is unmerited and unjust. And so it is evil. That's what it is. He's talking about personal retaliation. He's talking about personal vengeance. He's talking about going out in yourself, on your own. Someone's attacked you for your faith, and you, on your own, are exercising retaliation and a rebuke. He calls it revenge. He calls it vengeance. He calls it repaying evil for evil. Repaying evil for evil. And then you might be thinking to yourself, but what about Earthly justice. What about earthly justice? Is there a plan for earthly justice? Does God have a plan for earthly justice? Like maybe the state, maybe the king, maybe laws, right? Things like that, courts. Romans 13.4, you can go there or just listen. He says, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Speaking of the state, speaking of governments. He says, for he is, listen now, the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's the state. There is a place for retribution. There is a place for retaliation. Maybe we wouldn't use those words. We might use words like justice, justice. 
And so we give it to the courts. We give it to the state. We give it to the king. We give it to the folks who have been put in place. And you say, yeah, but you know, they're not all good. They're not all righteous. They're, and some of them are, are evil, and they're acting in evil. And yeah, it's terrible, and they'll be judged for that. But it's God's design to have law. It's God's design to have government. It's God's design to have kings and, and queens in some cases, right? And uh, parliaments and different forms of government to set in order. It says here, the sword, and to what? To be a servant of God, avenging, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, right? So, but for you and me, we're not to do that. We're not to give way to evil on account of evil. We're going to be the recipients of evil. We're going to be the recipients of unjust persecution, unjust suffering, tribulation on account of the gospel. It's happening, but we're not to react. And it's easy to do, isn't it? Of course it is. We're not to give way to anger and give the devil a foothold. That's for you and me. Now, ultimately, of course, the full, comprehensive, eternal vengeance belongs to just one person, obviously the Lord Jesus. Now, let's listen to Romans 12. I'm just going to pull a few verses out of chapter 12 of Romans. Here again, speaking of love, love one another with brotherly affection. We're to outdo one another in showing honor. That's 12.10. 12, 12.12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 12.14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 12.17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19, Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. And then 12.20, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Finally, in 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're to overcome evil with good. We have so many verses here. You guys can go back in homework and read Romans 12 on your own to see over and over not to repay evil for evil. I just wonder why does Scripture say it so often? Probably because we have to be told so often, right? And so we have this command. How are we going to do this command? Well, we do it in verses 16 through 18. We're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. What does he say there? He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Verse 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. There's the contrast. Don't do this, but do this, right? You're not to do this over here, repay evil for evil, vengeance, retaliation, retribution in the flesh. Don't do that. So what do you Fill, how do you fill the void? How are you going to fight against the flesh which wants you to retaliate? He says it right here, 16 18. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. And when? Always, unceasing, in all circumstances. And then he says, this is the will of God. That's part two. This is the will of God. That you what? That you rejoice, you pray, you give thanks, always unceasing and in all circumstances. Now, this is really interesting. Twice now we've seen this phrase, the will of God. Twice. It's one thing to see it twice in Scripture. It's another thing to see it twice in one letter. Didn't we see it back in chapter 4, verse 3? This is the will of God, your what? Sanctification. Sexual purity. Remember, we went through that? And then here it is again. This is the will of God. What? That you rejoice. That you pray and give thanks. Now you might be thinking, well, what is, what's included? Is it just those verses? 
And for homework, I think you can go back and look at verses 12, verses 13, verses 14 of chapter 5. And you would, again, I use words like, you can't be dogmatic, but I think Paul's including verses 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way down into 18 as that being the will of God, right? That we esteem highly and love our elders, our overseers, our pastors. We talked about that last time. So let's look at this. He says, you're to rejoice, you're to pray, and have thanksgiving. Now, contextually, we know that they were grieved. We know that they were grieving, right? Like those that didn't have any hope. Not all of them, certainly, but there were a few people uninformed about the parousia, the coming, the visible, actual coming of the Lord, and those who had already died. Would they miss out? So they're grieving. Some of them are grieved. And so it's appropriate, then, that he should come around and remind them again to rejoice. You're to be a people who are rejoicing. We have much to rejoice about, right? Again, it doesn't mean we can't weep, right? We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. Again, that's Romans 12, and we're to weep with those who weep. So there's a place for weeping, but on the whole, we are to be a people, the Thessalonians are to be a people marked in, in the backdrop of suffering as a people who are marked by love, not retribution, not vengeance. All right, so we have an emphasis here of a settled spirit of contentedness. A settled spirit of contentedness. Why? Based on what? On account of our position in Christ Jesus. And it's Christ Jesus who's causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, right? Who are called according to his purpose. And so we have a settled spirit of contentedness knowing that it's Christ who's in command. It's Christ who's sovereign. And on that basis alone, he alone is working all things for good for you and me. And so we can have a settled spirit of contentedness, knowing that he's sovereign, knowing that he's keeping his promises. We're not destined for wrath. We saw that as well, didn't we? Not destined for God's wrath, though destined for man's wrath, destined for wrath from the enemy. And especially in light of that wrath, especially in light of the uh, circumstances of tribulation and persecution and affliction, for the gospel, knowing that we're not to be rejoicing as you know, marked by circumstances. It's outside of circumstances. It's no matter the circumstances, right? All right, so we're to rejoice. That's what he's saying. You're not to operate in vengeance. You're to rejoice. You're to rejoice in Christ's victory, his victory. Listen to Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... Is tribulation, is distress going to separate us from the love of Christ? How about persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 8.37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Evil, famine, nakedness, dangers, wrath, a sword, right? And yet we're still conquerors. He says more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Rejoice. We ought to be rejoicing when you hear things like that. And what else does he say? He says to pray and give thanks. That's what he says. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time, but I just want to show you that rejoicing, praying, and thanksgiving. These three are inextricably linked, right? You can't have joy without rejoicing, apart from prayer and thanksgiving to God. So how does it work? You go to God in prayer, sure you do, and you thank him. You thank him. And as you begin to thank him in prayer for all the things he's done, all the things he's doing, and all the things that he will do, as spelled out in Scripture, as spelled out in your own experiences, what happens? Does he not give you a joyful heart? Of course he does. It's a gift. You're in prayer, going to God, 
You have thanksgiving, and he's giving you a joyful heart. And you begin to rejoice. You begin to reflect on what God is doing, has done, and will do. Amen? And right? And then what does that do? It's a vicious circle, right? Not in a bad way, in a great way. So you're overcome with joy. You're overcome with rejoicing. You're overcome with warmth and this adoration of God. And what do you do? Well, you want to express it, don't you? Well, how do you express it? Well, you go right into your prayer closet again, and you there you are in prayer again, unceasingly, always, regardless of the circumstance, going to God and giving thanks. And it's just, it just never ends. It just goes on and on and on. Hey, you guys who are suffering tribulation and affliction for the gospel terribly from your own countrymen, chapter 2, I think it's verse 14, hey, don't lose heart. You're not to retaliate. You're not to operate in vengeance. You're not to operate in the flesh. Do this instead. Rejoice. Rejoice. Pray. Go to God. Rejoice in thanksgiving. Of course, it makes sense. Absolutely. So, Hopefully that'll make sense to you guys as well. Doing it constantly, he says, unceasingly, ongoing as the pattern and practice of our walk in our life. It's a regular occurrence. It's a good idea. It's more than a good idea. It's a command. More than a command, the will of God. The will of God. It says so right there. It's the will of God. All right, well, that was, that was section one. Now we're going to go into section two of four. And here we're going to be looking at prophecy Spiritual gifts, the Spirit. Why don't we read these verses? Verses 19 through 22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Well, we have three camps, don't we? We have the folks who say absolutely zero, no spiritual gifts at all, period. The year is 2022, they ended. It's over. None. That's one camp. The other camp says, well, there's some gifts, Matt. Come on now, hold on. There's some gifts, not all gifts, you know, tongues, healings, prophecies, miraculous, sensational signs and wonders. Those are gone. Those are over. But there's still some other gifts, gifts of teaching, gifts of exhortation, gifts, gifts of evangelism and giving and mercy and so on and so forth. Those are active, but it's just the other ones that aren't active. Okay, and then there's a third camp who says, no, actually, everything is active right here today. Nothing ceased, nothing has ceased. Tongues, miracles, healings, the sensational gifts, the miraculous gifts, and the ones that you can't see. All of them, tongues, all of them. It's happening right here today. Three camps. Nothing, some of it, and all of it, all right? So which is it, right? What is it? What is it? Why don't we look at Scripture, okay? First, I want to put one of these camps to bed, and that is that there are no gifts for today. I think we can, I think we can all agree that there are some gifts. There are at least some gifts, right? But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read from Romans. What does he, what does he say? Paul says, Romans 12, 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us by grace, by grace, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. We saw that a few weeks ago. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Cheerfulness. Now, this is not a comprehensive list of spiritual gifts. Let me just say that as a disclaimer. But I think we have teachers today. Well, we could confidently say amen to that, can't we? Okay. All right. Are there people who serve? Amen. Okay. Uh, giving? 
That's a gift that very few people seem to have these days, but giving's a gift. It's a gift, and you're to give with generosity. So we're not going to go through the whole list here, but we've at least identified one, for sure, teaching, two, right, serving. There's at least several gifts here. So the camp that says there's no gifts today, the Spirit's not active at all today in us with spiritual gifts, I think we can put that one to bed, okay? There are gifts. The Spirit's active. He's moving in and through His people with divine gifts. All right. That was the easy one, right? (laughs) We're going to close that one up. But listen, how do we get the gifts? Before we go on to is it some gifts or is it all gifts, how do we get the gifts? How do we get them? 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To each, these are believers now, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All right? And I said that a few weeks ago as well. It's for the common good. It's not for you. You don't magnify yourself in the gift that God's given you. It's for others. It's for the building up of others. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, 11, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who, it's the Spirit, it's God, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. He wills it. It's according to His will. It's His purpose. It's His kingdom. It's His plan and purpose. And He's going to gift each believer, some with many gifts, some with at least one gift. Right? I had a a buddy of mine back in high school, and he was going to help me speak in tongues. And um, it didn't work. It didn't work, you know. It didn't happen for me, okay? It didn't happen for me, right? And, and as I speak about these things, you know, you can feel the tension in the room, you know, for some of you guys, you know, uh, the rapture was really controversial a few weeks ago, wasn't it? That was really, whoa, slow down, Matt. You know, you're, you're stepping on toes here. Uh, we talk about gifts here, like healings. I say things like miracles and tongues and, and prophecy, and, and I can see some of you, the facial reactions, it's just like, oh, man, here we go, right? And it gets a lot of people wound up and worked up. All right? And the question is, are these for today? And I'm here to tell you that this is not a tier one issue. What in the world does tier one mean? Well, here's what I can tell you. In this church, SBC, all right, this is not a fight we're going to, this is not a hill we're going to die on, okay? I think there's an answer. I think scripture is plainly clear, as I would say. Um, I'll get to what I think here in just a second. But Tonight's presentation will not be dogma. Get that? No dogma tonight. I have what I believe out of Scripture, but I'm not here to beat you up because you believe one thing or the other. Amen? All right? And in fact, as we go through these verses, I think this is probably the most pragmatic, practical area of Scripture on gifts and how we, as a body of believers, are to interact with this topic, right, as this thing unfolds here. Now, there's two verses here, verses 19 and 20. Let's look at it. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. And here's the funny thing. For the guys who say there are some gifts, just not all of them, and the guys that say, no, it's all gifts, both camps use these verses. (laughs) They both use these verses to say the same thing. Here's what I'm going to say. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Don't quench it. Don't snuff out the Spirit. You're not to disregard. You're not to disavow. You're not to disassociate, period. It's a command. There it is. The Spirit's working. He's active. He's prompting, he's moving in the ministry on his saints, right? Ephesians 4.11, and he gave the apostles, speaking of gifts, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, for what purpose? Ephesians 4.12, to equip the saints for the ministry, or excuse me, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, 
We are to grow, Ephesians 4.15 says, up in every way into him, that is Christ, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint and with which it, it, is, it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's Ephesians chapter 4. You guys can go back for homework. All that to simply say what? The Spirit's moving. The Spirit is active in believers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, ultimately for building up the body of Christ. That's God's plan. We're not just out here surfing, waiting for his parousia. We're out here ministering, A, to each other, but we're ministering to the lost world, aren't we? And telling them about our Savior, Jesus, and trying to get them over here as much as we can, evangelizing. So the Spirit's moving to grow us all up into maturity, into Christ. He says, don't despise prophecies. You're not to contempt. You're not to regard it with contempt. With, he says, despise with scorn, with hatred. Now, what is prophecies? What is prophecy? It's associated with knowledge, teaching, and revelation. Say that again. It's associated with knowledge, teaching, and revelation. Prophecy. All right? Listen to 1 Corinthians 14, 6. This will make sense. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? How am I going to benefit you unless I bring you some knowledge? That's what he says here. It's a revelation, it's knowledge, it's prophecy, it's teaching. In a word, synonyms. These are synonyms. Now, there's some variance here. There's some uniqueness to each of those words. But the bottom line is he's saying, how can I benefit you if I don't, how, do, how does it benefit you if I speak in tongues, but I don't bring a word of knowledge? I don't bring truth. I don't bring a doctrine. I don't bring a precept. I don't bring a teaching from Christ that would actually help you in doing your ministry of growing others into maturity. Now, he's not dogging speaking in tongues. He's just saying, Revelation, knowledge, prophecy, teaching, they're linked. And that's what I'm trying to show you tonight. He says, don't despise prophecies. That's what he said. We're talking about prophecies. Don't despise prophecies. What is it? It's linked with revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. Well, it's prophecy, all right? It can be divine revelation. Divine revelation, that means it's new information from God. New information from God. It's divine. Or it could be existing information, i.e., here we have the canon of Scripture. There it is right? Existing, and it is proclaimed. It is taught, all right? So contextually, where does it land here? In my estimation, we've already seen that prophecy is a gift. We know that. We just read it in Corinthians 16 and 6, and it's following his command to not quench the Spirit. He opened up the topic of the Spirit. He's the one that brought it up. He goes, don't quench the Spirit, and don't despise prophecies. Oh, and by the way, we already saw that prophecy is a gift of the Spirit, so they're linked. It's divine, it's divine. Of course it is. So, again, the two camps, all gifts are for today or only some gifts are for today, right? So what is it? What is it? Well, personally, personally, for me, I'm in the camp that says it's some. It's some. That's where I land. We can talk about why later after this, okay? All right? I know you guys don't want to talk to me, some of you guys. Just hear me out. Watch now. 1 Corinthians 13.8. 1 Corinthians 13.8. What does Paul say? Love never ends. It never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. <clears throat> and some of you are like, that was the verse. Uh, hang on a second. We've got to keep reading. That was 13, 
chapter 13, verse 8. My other brothers were going to say, but Matt, you've you got to keep reading. Look at, look at verse 9 and, and 10. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Okay, so far so good. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When, will, when, does, it, when does it go away? It goes away when the perfect comes. Oh, but now we have another conundrum, don't we? What's the perfect? It's the Bible. No, I thought it was Jesus. Oh, man, I'm, man, I'm more confused now than when we first started. Huh? Here's what I want to show you. This is what I want to show you. It's verse 21. This is the, if you guys don't remember anything out of this, verse 21 is so critical. And as I said, it's so helpful. It's pragmatic. Sometimes we're in the Word and we're like, man, I just need something to help me right now because I'm struggling, right? And, and the Bible, of course, is helpful, but sometimes you come across a verse like 21 and it's just like, man, it smacks you in the face and it's actually helpful for the year of 2022, right? All scriptures, of course, I, I don't want to you know, say that, but look at this. It says, but test everything. Watch now. He says, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Dokimadzo. We saw that before. We studied that. Test everything. It's not a casual glance. You're not just going to agree, right? Examine closely. You scrutinize. You discern. You prove and test the authenticity and genuineness of something. Of something, okay? We want to be biblical in our understanding and our application of God's word, including the gifts, right? Including the gifts. We have to do verse 21. We have to examine closely. We have to put whatever gift, in this case it's prophecy, this is what Paul's talking about. He says, don't despise prophecies. We have to put whatever the gift is, in this case it's prophecy, under the scriptural microscope, the Word of God. And we're to prove and test whether this gift, in this case it's prophecy, is of God or it's not of God. It's of God or it's not of God. He says, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every, every form of evil. Teaching of men, the teaching of men and claiming to be in Christ, whatever they're teaching, it is to be examined very closely, very closely. Why? Because it could be a counterfeit. It could be a counterfeit. Whatever teaching this guy is peddling, he could be a counterfeit. Satan himself, we know, an angel of light, or he parades around as an angel of light, but in himself is nothing but darkness. We know that. He's a liar, a thief, a murderer from the beginning. We're to hold fast to the truth. And I'm laboring this point for just a moment here. It's connected to verse 21 because of the persecution that they were in. As we shall see in the next letter, they believed convincingly. They weren't, obviously, but they believed that they were in the day of the Lord, the dreaded day of the Lord. That's what they believed. And so somebody was out there peddling a letter supposedly from Paul, or a, a supposed word, right? A manifestation of the Spirit of God, a divine word. Someone had a divine word and was causing them to panic, to be shaken, and think that they were in the dreaded day of the Lord. So something was happening. Our command is not a wholesale disregard of prophecy and what the Spirit is doing. That's what he says. You're not to have a wholesale at if it's tongues, nope, I don't even want to talk about it. If it's miracles, eh, I don't want to talk about it. It's not there, it's not there. You're not to do that. You're not to put off and shun the Spirit. What are you to do? You're not to despise prophecies. We're to do what? We have to test. The other side of that is you're not to blindly accept everything that says they're of Christ. Well, he's a believer, he teaches the Word, and he 
you know, wow, it must be true. Why? Because he said so? Or because the Word of God says so? You have to test it. You have to prove it. Can I take you to Matthew 24, verse 24? It's all building up to something here. What did Jesus say? Right? He says false Christs and false prophets will arise. Is that all he said? No, there's more. Let's keep reading. They will arise, and what will they do? They will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The counterfeiters are here, and there's even more horrifying counterfeiters to come. And it says very clearly here, they will perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. I'm here to tell you, those are real signs and wonders. It's not David Copperfield. It's not David Blaine magic. It's not like, you know, uh, illusions. Uh, There's no CGI here. In fact, it's so... Uh, unexplainable. In fact, it's supernatural. It extends beyond the supernatural, uh, the, the natural. That's why I call it supernatural. It's above. It's outside the bounds of nature, of physics. It's supernatural, and it's designed to capture the ignorant and unbelieving. He says, be careful, be alert, be watchful, be sober, test everything. Test it. If it passes, praise God. But if it doesn't, you're to steer clear of that. Abstain and flee from evil. Either accept it or you reject it. Can we make this practical now? I already told you that I don't think some, some of the gifts are for today. I think some of the gifts are for today and others are not, okay? So do I get angry? Do I pound my fist and beat people over the head and tell them why they're, you know, dumb or whatever? And watch, I might be the dumb guy. And that's the thing, I don't know it all. I don't know at all. The scripture can go a few different ways in these. I can find a few verses. You can find a few verses. What if we just did what the text said? I think we'd both benefit from it. You say there's tongues. I say there isn't. You say there's prophecy. I say there isn't. You say there's miracles and signs and wonders. I say there isn't. Why don't we do this? Let's test it. Would you be open to having it tested? You should be. It just said, test it. You want to show that it's genuine and it's wrought in God? You should be open to having it tested. Amen? How about the other way around? Am I going to be so narrow-minded? I've made up my mind. My favorite pastor teacher tells me that those signs and wonders are for another day, and because I really like his teaching, I just blindly accept it, or can I just take the Word of God for what it says here and says, hey, Matt, don't despise prophecy. Test. Dokimadzo. Test it. Put it under the microscope. And here's the thing. It's guys like me who say, oh, that's tongues are for yesteryear, miracles and signs and wonders. We're the ones who are going to get caught off guard when we see these miraculous signs and wonders. Because we're going to say it's impossible. My favorite teacher said it wasn't possible. And I can't deny the fact that this is really happening. And it's people that are committed in dogma on something that isn't absolutely concrete that are going to get not necessarily led astray, but they're going to get like, uh, what's going on here? I can't explain it. I need my favorite pastor teacher. Well, he's dead. All you have are CDs now. He can't help you. The Word of God can help you. The Word of God can help us, right? I know where I'm at on these things, but I also know what Scripture says. Matt, don't get all up in arms. Be at peace with all men, especially your brothers, and test it. Because here's the thing. If you're right, Matt, and there really is no miraculous gifts for today, then guess what? It'll prove itself. 
Oh, that kind of makes sense. Okay, then do it. All right, let's move on to our next section. This is God's workmanship. This is God's workmanship. We're in verse uh, 23 and 24. Now, he says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now, this is fascinating. I told you earlier we had the vignettes, these sections of uh, practical living, didn't I? The practical commands that we're going to live in. And we come to this section here, and it's called God's workmanship. And I didn't see any command for you and me. I didn't see any command for the Thessalonians. That's right. There's no command. He goes, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. There's no command. There's no command. God's will for you and me, chapter 4, verse 3, was our sanctification. We saw that. Sanctification. The will of God in your life and mine. Chapter 4, verse 3. Sanctification. We saw that. And here he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May he do the work that he's calling you to. It's his will that you be sanctified. It's his will that you be set apart for holiness, for purity, to radiate his glory and his magnificence. That's his will. And guess what? He himself will do it. He says so. Now may the God of peace himself bodily. He didn't just give this to some other angel. Gabriel's not doing this work. He himself is doing it. Now may the God of peace do this? No. May the God of peace himself bodily. It's himself. He's doing the work. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to set you apart. Just a little bit? It says completely. How completely? Well, let's keep reading. And may, the, and may your whole spirit. Oh, wait, that's not all. And your soul. Oh, wait, no, there's still more. And your body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. It's comprehensive. Spirit, soul, and body. There isn't anything left out. He has a will for you and me. And guess what? He's affecting that will. He's doing it. He himself is doing it. Yeah, it's awesome. It's an awesome call. It's an awesome work with awesome results because he himself is doing it. Ephesians 2.10, we know this one. We, this is you and me, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How about Philippians 2.13? You guys remember this one? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, for his good will and pleasure. We have a command in Scripture. He has a will and purpose for you and me. I'm calling you into sanctification. I'm calling you into holy living. I'm calling you into you know, righteous living, pure lives, pure thinking, pure motives, etc. How does he affect it? How does he help you to do that? Well, he's the one who's doing it, right? It's God who works in you, both your will, your desires, your affections, and to work. He energizes you to actually do the thing he's called you to. It's awesome. It's awesome. Now look at what he says here. We're in 23. He says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be what? Be kept blameless. Be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say may it become blameless one day. It really ought to be blameless at some point. He says kept. He says kept blameless. It's already blameless. You're already justified in Christ. There's no accusation, you're justified. He's preserving you, he's keeping you, he's protecting all of us. He's doing it. He says, 
may the God of peace himself do this. Right. And may he keep your whole spirit, soul, and body. May he keep it blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To what end is he keeping you and me blameless? He's keeping you until the parousia. Did you see that? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How far does it extend him keeping you blameless? How far does it extend him sanctifying you and drawing you closer into the image of his son? Until what? Until the coming, that's parousia. We talked about that. That the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his coming. Hmm. Well, let's look at this next section then. As I told you, these were just highlights as we go through these, these little sections, these little vignettes for you guys to mark off something that jumps out and you can go back. Let's keep moving here. We're in verses 25 through 28. Paul says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The first thing he says here at the end here is prayer. It's a prayer request. Now, we're used to Paul praying. We're used to Silas praying. We're used to Timothy and these guys praying for them on their behalf. We're used to that. But here at the very end, he says, having written five chapters, he says, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us. Paul, the apostle Paul, if you can believe it, needs prayer. He doesn't just need prayer. He's reaching out to the Thessalonians. He's asking them. We don't have any of their names here. We don't know. We can't say Bob and you know, and Frank and whoever. We don't know who they are. We know who Silas is. We know who Paul is. We know who Timothy is. He says, brothers, after everything we've said, after everything we've encountered and been with you and all the, the report that Timothy had when he came back about you and your love for us and love for each other and your love for Christ, your steadfastness in Christ, I have just one question, one, one request, one ask at the very end of my letter here, and that is that you pray for us. You pray for us. He doesn't even just say pray for me. He said pray for us. He's including Silas with him whoever else is with Paul at the moment that he's writing this, pray for us. What humility to reach out. We put, maybe it's me alone, who puts Paul on a pedestal, and we think, you know, man, Paul was perfect. Well, we know it wasn't perfect, but, you know, he's pretty perfect, almost perfect, right? Not like me. And here he is asking for prayer. He needs prayer. Guess what? Can we make it practical? How about the pastors here? Need prayer. They need prayer. Yeah, but that's the pastor, and, you know, man, he's just living it, you know, and I never heard a curse word out of him and he just has a, a deep and abiding love and affection for the body and people when they come through and, and, and he's loving on people or they are loving on people, whoever the, the pastor is, okay? We're not going to mark out one pastor from another because they're all doing it and they all need prayer. You're to go to God on their behalf in prayer. Paul was going to God on their behalf in prayer, thanking God for what God was doing in and through them. He says, would you do the same? I'm being a little liberal here in my exposition, he says, pray for us, but you know, inasmuch as I was going to God on your behalf, would you do the same on my behalf, on our behalf, Silas and Timothy? And it's a reminder to each of us that we come into church and we're involved in whatever we're doing here and we can get caught up in this idea that the pastors are perfect and uh, they're somehow well-connected with God and somehow more holy and more righteous and more blameless than we could ever be and they've got it connected and they're on autopilot with God and, you know, I'm just down here and that's just simply not the case. He says, pray for us. And if the pastors were here now, right here in our midst this evening, Pastor Gary's back there somewhere, he would say the same thing. Would you pray for us? Go to God on, on our behalf. 
Oh, let's keep going here. He says, greet all the brothers. This is so good. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Can you think of anything more intimate than getting up close, right, in someone's personal space? Like, whoa, dude, you're, you're in my space, right? Close enough for a kiss, a holy kiss. He says, greet all the brothers with what? A handshake, a fist bump? No. He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. It was before COVID. He says, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. Remember, he was bereft of them. Do you guys remember that? They were torn away. We talked about that. And they were orphaned. They were persecuted. They were only there, I was estimating, six, seven or so, eight weeks. Not that long. And they had so much ministry that they wanted to continue. And then they were ripped apart. As I said, go read Acts 17. You guys can read the details for what actually happened there. And he's endeavoring to get back, but they were stymied. Didn't he say that? He said, every single time we try and get back to you, we're trying to, but the enemy, he won't let us. We're stymied in every time, every bit, every program that we put together to get back to you. And it was strange. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Timothy was able to somehow go, but Paul wasn't. Silas wasn't able to go. We don't know why. All right? And what he says is, would you pray for us? Hey, man, when you get this letter, I want you, I want you to give it to them. We'll get to that here in a second, verse 27. But in the meantime, I want, when you see them, would you wrap your loving arms around them? Get real close, close enough to kiss them. Give them a holy kiss. He loves them. As I said previous, if you were ever curious or questioning whether or not Paul had a deep, abiding affection for these people, or if he just stood like this and was dictating and yelling and screaming. It wasn't like that. Greet them. Greet them with a holy kiss. A holy kiss. All right? He says in verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Under an oath. It got serious all of a sudden, didn't it? Temperature just went up. It says, pray for us. Right? I entreat you. Would you pray, on, would you pray for us on our behalf? Would you go to the Lord on our behalf? Oh, when you see the brothers, would you greet them? Give them a big hug. More than that, a holy kiss. Give them a kiss. As if it were from me and Silas, as a loving mother and father. We saw that in chapter uh, 1. Look at this. And now I'm putting you under an oath before the Lord. You're under an oath. Careful with oaths. Jesus said a, had a few words about oaths. I put you under oath. I put you under God's divine judgment. That what? That you have this letter read to all the brothers. I can't be with you. So I'm asking you to hug them. I'm asking you to give them the holy kiss. I'm trying to get to you. I haven't given up. But I'm putting you under an oath. Why? Why does he put them under an oath? Why is it so important that he put them under an oath, an oath that this letter be read among all the brothers? Because he doesn't want anyone left out. He doesn't want anybody left out. This isn't just a little love letter to the leadership this isn't just a little love letter to the, his little inner circle when he was there in Thessalonica. No, 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 no. This is everybody. 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 What about the new, the new people that have come into the church? Them too. This is for everybody. Not just a select few. So important is this, and I put you under an oath before God. You're not to just pal around with your buddies and just enjoy the fact that I've called you a crown. He says, my crown, my joy. You guys remember that? He loves them dearly. There's tremendous affection. He wants to be with them. He wants to, be, he wants to have intimacy with them, and he adjures them under oath that they should do this thing. And then finally, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's how he ends it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's a great letter. 
I hope you guys enjoyed this letter as much as I did. Having come off of Galatians, it was a bit dark. And this one's just filled to the brim, overflowing with love. His own love, Silas's love, Timothy's love, and then their love for all those people, Macedonia, Achaia, everywhere, the watching world. It's awesome. He calls them his, his crown, his joy before the Lord. Now, we're going to continue on into our next letter for next time. So be reading ahead. It's only three chapters, but they're jam-filled, so you want to do that. Stay in your groups, and I'll get the questions on the board.